So we are opening to this new, I mean, it's a new thing that I'm going to teach, but uh, other people who have come and taught over the last couple of months may have um, talked about this. It's this idea of non-self. It's such a beautiful thing that the Buddha realized, and yet in our ordinary way of looking at life, it's such a complicated mess of something to understand. We try to figure it out. And I'm hopeful that I can uh, reassure you that there's nothing to figure out. You already know non-self. You don't have to figure it out for yourself. And maybe we can we can practice this month without the striving to somehow experience non-self by not being here, which is just not possible because we are here. So he must have been pointing to something else. And that's what I want to talk about today. And just to put some context around it, um, he, uh, this is the third aspect of the three characteristics. So we talked about this idea that the world is impermanent. It's always moving, changing. It never really stays the same. And then there's this uh, dissatisfaction or what is called dukkha, what is called suffering, but Really, it's just this uh, quality of not um, not liking that constant change and trying somehow to make the world more permanent, more constant. And that trying to make the world more constant and permanent so we have something to get our foot, you know, like feel like we're steady on that creates a lot of suffering in us unnecessarily. And this third aspect to me is a necessary part in order for us to actually see impermanence. Meaning that it doesn't really matter how much we realize, accept, or even believe that the world is impermanent. If we don't have a framing or a wisdom mind that's coming from non-self, we are still going to hate every time some unpleasantness comes our way. We are still going to get trapped in some good thing that's happening and forget that one day it's going to pass away and then we're going to be bummed again. We're going to forget that that there is this constant changing, moving and rearranging. And because we're going to forget that in our ordinary way of looking at life, that forgetting always creates this sense where we're going to be struggling. And there's no way around that, that struggle, if we don't add in this understanding of non-self. The Buddha did not say no self. This idea 
that we should have no identity, no self, no, no, um, we can't have any label as to who we are. And I remember when I first started practicing as a black woman, if I would make any reference to being black as a black woman in the practice, I got so much pushback against that because it was like, no, 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 we're practicing without any identity and uh, everything is just, we're all on one, one accord, no separation. I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> so I suppose you think people don't see a black woman when I show up in the room, but uh, I hate to be the one to break it to you. <laughs> but that's just not, it's not realistic. It's not real. It's, 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 it is. These identities are very much a part of who I am. What I had to come to begin to see is that I'm not only a Black woman. There are all kinds of aspects to who I am, and it's always changing, and it's never really the same, and I'm not this and only this. I have... I I have... Uh, a, a way of being in the world that frees me up to be pretty much anything. And I, and any one of us could be anything. This aspect of non-self is the only reason why the Buddha not only awakened, but he awakened and could tell how to do it. I, I, I remind myself all the time that the Buddha was not the only being to awaken. This Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha that we follow, he's not the only person that ever got enlightened. Many people have gotten enlightened and many people were enlightened before him and many people enlightened after him. That isn't what made him so special. There's something that made him special, and that's what I wanted to start with, to get a sense of what it is that he was pointing to, why he was so significant. But um, I think I'll read the sutta. My computer, my printer is still not working, so me and my computer have to come together, but I want to read this little bit of a sutta and I just want to read it because there are four different translations of it and they all sound different but I want to read so what the context of this is seven weeks after the Buddha was enlightened uh, we talked about this he went and found his five friends that left him when they thought he had uh, failed in the practice. They, they thought he had given up. You know, they were aesthetics, ascetics. And so they practiced hard and they practiced uh, difficult and it's very challenging. They did not eat. They did not do anything that would, would be pleasurable. And um, Buddha um, took food. And when he did, they left him. They thought that, I mean, he was dying. I, I think I told you guys this, maybe the last time I was here, that 
there were devas looking down at the Buddha thinking, I think he's dead. No, he's not dead. He's dying. But no, I think he's dead. And they were arguing about whether or not he was dead or not. But anyway, he took something to eat and, and that his friends thought he had, uh, that he was weak and that he, he could not uh, sustain the practice and he had given up. And so he was by himself when he went through this process of coming to the understanding of awakening. And then he had this awakening, this understanding. And after seven weeks, he went to find the five friends of his, those five practitioners to share with them what he knew. And what made the Buddha significant is not only that he could tell the direct path to awakening, but that in his telling, you could understand. You could actually understand and awaken. That's what happened uh, when when he got to the five. And I think it's like, it, you know, I think they were like 200 miles away. So we had to walk all the way. Um, just imagine here for a moment, would you walk 200 miles to find the crew that left you when you were dying? I just said, that's just a little bit outside of my context. But okay, but he did this. And when he got there, he tells them about the Four Noble Truths, which we're going to talk about in a couple of, uh, uh, in the fall or towards the winter time at the end of the year. But he tells them about the Four Noble Truths. He tells them about this realization of dukkha as an existence in the way that we live. And that when we see that dukkha, we begin to understand what that is. We can see how we are pushing against reality and causing our own suffering. And we could let go of it. We could let go of the pushing and be in the flow of the moment, the energetic flow of what's happening and actually uh, liberate the mind if we, um, as we steadied with this flow. And so he describes to them what happened. And then there's this little bit that I want to share with you that, um, so this is what, I mean, this is, uh, who is this? This is Peter Harvey's way of describing this moment when he's talking. He says, uh, this is what the Blessed One said, elated the uh, bhikkhus of the group of five delighted in the Blessed One's statement. And while this explanation was being spoken, there arose in the venerable Kadana the dust-free, stainless vision of the basic path, of the, the basic pattern, the Four Noble Truths. Whatever is patterned with an origination, all that is patterned with a cessation. So whatever is patterned with an origination, all that is patterned with a cessation. So it goes on. I'll leave this little part out. You got to really have a belief system in it. But all these devas begin to 
realized that the Buddha had uh, did this what's called turning the wheel of Dhamma because by his words alone, someone else heard it and understood and they too became awakened. Um, so then he, it says, thus at that moment, at that instant, at that second, um, the cry spread as far as the Brahmin world. And, 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 and uh, this last piece I wanted to say was, then the Buddha, then the blessed one uttered this inspiring utterance. The honorable Kadanda, uh, Kadana has indeed understood. The honorable Kadana has indeed understood. In this way, the venerable Kananda acquired the name um, Kandanda, a one who understood. All right, that's one way of saying it. It's this part that I'm talking about where the Buddha like recognizes somebody understood him. One little piece. When the Buddha first awakened, he, he was so joyous. And in this moment, it's sort of like us when we have some aha moment in practice. And our first thoughts are, I should tell my sister. <laughs> I should tell somebody. So he thought, I should teach this. And then he was like, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's kind of obscure what I'm talking about. And people won't get it. And they'll mess up my piece. Yeah, no, I'm not doing none of that teaching. <laughs> he, he wasn't going to do it. And someone, one of the Davis, if you believe in that way, came and kind of inter- energetically said, no, you have to teach this. And so he, out of compassion, he decided to go teach it. And he went to his five friends to tell them. So uh, Kandana was one of those five friends. And he understood what the Buddha was saying. He awakened and understood what he was saying just by listening to it. Another way that it was said, this is from uh, uh, Payadasi, Tara. Payadasi says, um, um, The way that uh, they describe Venerable uh, Kadana's uh, awakening was um, whatever has the nature of arising has the nature of a ceasing. That's what he realized. Whatever has the nature of arising has the nature of ceasing. And the way the Buddha exclaimed his excitement was verily, Kadanda has realized, verily, Kadanda has realized. Thus, it was that the venerable Kadanda received the name Ana Kadanda, one who realizes. All right, that's another way to say it. Still, it doesn't seem to, didn't blow with me. Then um, Nanamoli uh, Tara. It says it like this, what uh, Kadanda realized was whatever is subject to arising is all subject to cessation. All right, this is making a little bit of sense. 
And the Buddha uttered the acclamation, Kadanda knows, Kadanda knows. It's like it's getting a little bit more like, to me, the Buddha didn't expect that anyone would know or understand what he was saying. But he realized that one of his friends understood what he was talking about. This is the last one. This is the one I like. So, um, so what Kadanda realized, whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. So he realizes whatever is arises passes away. And this is the way the Buddha spoke to him. He said, so you really know, Kadanda? <laughs> so you really know? <laughs> there was this question, like, did you get it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, my God. Do you, know, do you get it? It's like that. That's what I think the Buddha realized in that moment, that teaching was what he was supposed to do. And the, the, the actual understanding is not something that we learn in a textbook. It's not something that we can come to understand using our ordinary intellectual way of looking at any experience. It's not that. You don't know this. It is a realization that you don't have to do a thing in life that they that whatever arises will pass away regardless of what you do. You can get in there and try to hold it or you can try to push it, but all of that energy is dukkha because whatever is of the condition to arise will on its own pass away. Every emotion you have will at some point pass away. There is no emotional energy that will stay permanently. It will all go. And it doesn't have anything to do with us. In fact, if we dwell on the sadness, it will stay forever because the mind will never let it go. Our ordinary minds will not let things go. It lives in permanency. But in the natural flow of things, it's like trees. They will get leaves and they will fall away and they will get more leaves and they will fall away and they will get more leaves and they will fall away until that tree dies. They will just keep getting more leaves and they will fall away. And so this understanding that venerable Kadanna had was it was an understanding that had nothing to do with his knowing. He didn't figure it out. He had an understanding. So if we're going to practice on this path to get this understanding, it's not going to come when everything is all fixed. It's going to come in random moments in time. It's going to come from our paying attention to whatever's happening. Just being in the experience of whatever it is, 
without somehow trying to make the perfect experience that uh, I think I need to have. So, um, Pema Children, uh, I love this woman. Uh, her way of dealing with suffering is so uh, beautiful um, that I love help. She has a way of putting our difficulties into perspective. And um, she says that um, that our ego is like a room of your own, a room with a view, with the temperature and the smells and the music that you like. You want it your own way. You'd like to just have a little peace. You'd like to just have a little happiness. You know, just give me a break. But the more you think that way, the more you try to get life to come out so that it will always suit you. The more you fear, the more your fear of other people and what's outside of your room begins to grow. So rather than becoming more relaxed, you start pulling down the shades and locking the doors. And that's what happens to us. The more we get, feel this, uh, the liking of stuff, the way we like it and having everything the way we like it the more control the mind has to exert on everything. And the more we get locked into this idea that I can make my life a certain way. I can make the world be the way I want it to be. The more we have this idea that there is a good way the world should be and a bad way the world is. And if we could get rid of the bad people and the bad stuff and make it good, everybody's going to be happy. Everything's going to be great. That's the world we want to have. And that idea in and of itself is delusional. I mean, in one way to think about it, you cannot have the word abundance if you don't have um, starvation. You got to have a scarcity in order to have abundance. You cannot have um, daylight, daytime, without it arising out of nighttime. So everything that we are looking to have, it has to arise out of what we're looking not to have. And without that acceptance that the cosmos is really full of everything, it's without this ability to accept everything, then we are limited and don't really accept anything. This is what the Buddha was pointing to when he was talking about non-self. It's not that I am not here. It's that I'm not separate from the experience that we're all having right now. That part of who I am right now, part of who you are right now, is this collective that we happen to be experiencing in this moment. 
So if we bring our full attention to this moment and experience this moment, then whoever you are in this moment, whoever I am in this moment, this is what's real. It does not matter who you were two hours ago. It doesn't matter who you were at work or what you were doing or what you're going to do when we're done. What matters, what's real, who you are, it's right here, right now. That's it. And he was saying that there's no, this capacity to begin to recognize that in this non-separation, then we, the, the experience we're having and who we are being in this experience co-arises together. And in that co-arising, it arises uh, kind of like for the moment. It's here for this moment and it will fall apart and then there'll be no more. So whoever I was in this moment, uh, when, when our time together is done, it's no more. Whoever we are right now is only here in this limited capacity. And it, it, even though we can record what's being said, it's not the same as this being here right now, experiencing what we're experiencing. So what I'm pointing to is, is that the Buddha was trying to get us to begin to appreciate the level of freedom that comes when we actually show up in reality with whatever is happening in reality in this moment. It doesn't matter whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. If we show up and be with the experience of now as now, we can be completely free from a lot of the dukkha that we talked about last month because that dukkha is kind of based in wanting this moment to be a particular way so I want the dhamma talk to be interesting I want the the temperature to be right I want the sound to be good. I want to be here, but I am sleepy as hell. I can barely keep my eyes open. I'm trying my best. I want it to be awake. And I'm fighting the sleepiness as if my sleepiness shouldn't be here. But it is here. And he was trying to get to, 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 to um, have this understanding, share this understanding that who we are, what we are, what is real is whatever happens to be in the moment. So I like the way Thich Nhat Hanh explains this. I like the way he talks about non-self because he says it better than I've ever heard it described. 
if you if you ever hear him, he's very slow when he talks and very methodical. But I think he explains it the best way. He says to think about uh, this idea of non-separation. So if you think of yourself as a human being, I'm a human being and I'm separate from everything else. Then to begin to see that you're really not that separate is that if you took out all the things that were not you as a human being, you wouldn't have any parts of you left. I mean, our bodies are made up of so much bacteria. That's not human being. That's bacteria being. It's made up of vitamins. That's not human beings. That's vitamins. It's a separate thing. Minerals. You take all this stuff out. Start taking the water out. Would just be dust. Start taking all the, take out consciousness. You know, there can't be any knowing that consciousness is not yours. If it were yours, you could control it. So you start taking all these things out of you that somehow have come together in order for us to be ourselves. And you begin, you can gradually begin to understand that there's no you here that's separate from all of the things that come together. And in this moment, we just happen to all be here. We are all here. There's earth here. There's water here. There's wind here. There's bacteria, germs, all kinds of little things that's here. And there's form. But no one here is separate from the moment that we are right now. It's... um, I'll give you another way to think about this. There's a sutta, um, it's called Bahia. Bahia, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite practitioners. Bahia was this uh, uh, man who, uh, uh, I can't remember the backstory, I always forget it, but anyway, he comes upon this town and he's dressed in uh, like a cloth, looks like a monk to the town people. So they take care of him and they treat him like a monk. And he practices. I mean, but he is a serious practitioner and he's practicing, but he's kind of like me. He's kind of making it up as he goes, whatever he thinks practices. That's what he's trying to do. And, uh, and you know, he's got his monastic kind of robes and stuff. And so the people treat him like a monastic. They can give him his arms around. They kind of take care of him. And so he decides, he thinks to himself, oh, I must be close to enlightenment. I'm probably one of the best practitioners ever. You know, I'm, I'm definitely doing good. I'm pretty close. And... Uh, one of the Davis heard him and kind of felt sorry for him. They said it was an ancestor, a relative, like, oh, Bahia, you're not really going. So what he tells Bahia is, you are not doing this the right way. You are not close to it like men. In fact, if you keep going the direction you're going, 
you are getting further and further away. Like, you know, that game you play with kids where it's hot, 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 cold, 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 cold. But he is way in the Arctic because the very nature of Bahia's practice is he is the great practitioner and he is becoming greater and greater and greater. And that idea that I am becoming greater is getting him further and further and further from the possibility that he could awaken. So they tell him to go to the Buddha and he goes to the Buddha. And when he goes to the Buddha, uh, he catches the Buddha right during alms rounds. And he wants uh, the Buddha to, he stops the Buddha and says, uh, you know, venerable sir, you, I know you're great and I don't want to be a bother. So if you give me the quick and dirty, I'll be on my way. Just tell me the quick thing I need to know and I'm on my way. <laughs> That's so me. Just give it to me quick and I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll go do it. I'll go study myself. And uh, the Buddha tells him, no, Bahia, I cannot. I cannot. This is alms round. This is the wrong time to have a Dhamma talk. I, I'm going to go. And we'll do it later. And he goes, no, no, no. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you don't know. Life is short. I could die. You should give it to me the quickest way that you can. And then I'll be on my way. The Buddha says, no, 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 no. Can't do it. He tells him three times. And finally, the Buddha feels sorry for Bahia. And I think the Buddha knew that Bahia was going to die pretty soon anyway. So uh, he stops and he tells Bahia this very simple, succinct way that you can begin to practice to grasp what non-self means. This idea, he tells Bahia, that in the seeing hearing, the sensing of the body, the tasting, in the cognizing of the mind, our thinking, and in the smelling, whatever it is, just let it be that. So try, so try you, you're sitting here. And, and this is the way I taught myself to do this. So if we're sitting here, I don't know about what sounds are around you guys, but if you're sitting here in the hall, you could hear that sound and say traffic, I'm listening to traffic. Okay, that's traffic. So whatever sound you hear, you can call it and label it a sound. That's the refrigerator. That's the fan. Okay, that's the sound. And then stop for a moment. And now just kind of put your attention on your ears and notice that the ears are just hearing sound. You don't really care what it is. It's just sound. It gets much more open if you just soften to just hearing versus listening to, or you can do it with seeing. Instead of looking at, you can just notice that your eyes are seeing. And you don't have to do anything for them to see. They just see. You open them, you close them. It doesn't matter. Your eyes are still going to see as much as they have the ability to see. And it doesn't have anything to do with you. Your ears hear. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It doesn't have your name on it. Your name is not even included. It's just 
the nature of the body for that sense door to hear, for our bodies to feel, for our taste buds to taste, for the mind to think. It doesn't even have anything to do with you that it's thinking. It just thinks about all kinds of things. And it processes things, thinks and thinks and thinks. We grab a hold of it and start dwelling on it, but we don't have to. Grabbing a hold of your thoughts is like listening to traffic outside. You can listen to traffic outside. Um, but that is not what's freeing. What's freeing is the realization that sound is just part of the moment. It doesn't have anything to do with you or me. It's just part of the moment here. And if the sound were not here, we don't have any control over whether the sound exists, doesn't exist. We don't have any control over it. We could just begin to see and begin to experience and understand that there is an existence that's happening that comes and goes and it has no bearing on us. We are in it, but we are not controlling it. When you begin to get what what the Buddha told Bahia is when you can just let these sense doors be the sense door and you stop trying to uh, make it be what you think it is, just let it be, then there won't be any you in it. And if there's no you in the moment, then you will be free. And I must tell you, I've read a lot of these little Buddha stories and they kind of all in the same way. So Bahia walks away and he got enlightened. I, I really wish that if the Buddha were here, if he could just show up for a little bit, that would clear everything up. <laughs> but no, good thing though, because Bahia, Bahia he walks away and he's enlightened and then he gets hit by this cart and dies. <laughs> That's so terrible, I know. But he was so right that uh, it was, he was so right in insisting that the Buddha teach him. And uh, it's like the Buddha recognized and his ability to just, we, there's nothing that will force you that will keep you from experiencing hearing as hearing. You can do that anytime you want. There's nothing that will keep you from just seeing. What ends up happening is that we don't trust the, we don't trust freedom. We don't trust the, um, fluidness of life when it's just coming and going. We don't trust that uh, life is going to do right by us. And I think that lack of trusting that life is going to do right by us, that we think we have to control things in order for life to do right by us. Inevitably, we come to this place where it's sort of like 
well, how would I live if I didn't do anything? If there's no me and there's no, I don't need to do anything. I can just be like the he and just let the hearing be the hearing. And what would I do exactly? I mean, who's going to pay my rent? How's it going to, how's, how's this going to work exactly? And I think this is what I mean by me being a black woman. The truth is we have to pay rent because we are lay practitioners. We have to pay rent. We have to go to work. So we have to set goals. We have to set intentions of how we're going to be and what we're going to do. But where we get tripped up is we think we can control the outcome of whether I get that job. And we cannot. We think we can control how long I have that job. And we can't control that. We can't control the economy. We can't control most of what happens in our lives. So what we do is we set these intentions, we set these uh, goals and these aspirations, and we move towards it. Just, I mean, I move towards law school. I move towards becoming a lawyer. What we don't, what we give up in order to practice in this way is this need to control the outcome. That's what, that's what selfie does. It is, we put this ownership on something, this ego of our room, and we have to control our lives. We set the temperature, we set the music, the smells. We want our lives to be completely controlled based on the way we want our lives to be controlled. I just, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I think I've told you guys this before, but I can't remember, but it's perfect, my perfect example. I, when I got out of law school, I got this opportunity to work at this law firm and it was, it came, to, I mean, it was very competitive to get this job and it came down to me and another guy. And I'm like, I am talking to God. I'm laying down everything I can do. I'm begging. Please let me have this job. I'm so stressed out. I want that job so bad. And I got it. And I was so overwhelmed. I even had a little bit of cockiness when I saw the guy at school, you know, like, yeah. Oh, he didn't know I got the job? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so happy. And... I, I, the job was conditioned on me passing the bar, but I was pretty cocky. I mean, of course I'm going to pass the bar. I'm so smart. I mean, nothing ever fails. I mean, I'm, I'm good on that. And then I failed the bar. So I had to give up my job and he came in. On the last day, I was packing all my little stuff up. And he came into the office and he goes, oh, I'm sorry. You're still here? I thought you were gone. I'm sorry. I didn't want to cause any trouble. I'm just going to put all my stuff here and then I'm going to get out. Don't worry about it. He's taking and putting all this stuff in and I'm just like getting my little stuff and I'm leaving. I'm so upset because I wanted that job and I should have had that job and it was mine. 
eventually I passed the bar. Way past that job. The firm, about a year and a half after I had had that job, went into a major tailspin. And all the partners, there was four of them, start fighting with each other. And they made all the associates like square up to which partner on whose side are you on. And associates don't want to do that because you don't know who's going to butter your bread later. So he's calling me, telling me, what should I do? What should I do? I'm like, uh, I don't know. You know, he said it started like six months into the job. They start bickering at their partner meetings. And then it just went downhill from that. I could have had that job, right? I, I begged for that job. Somehow God in this wisdom was like, please let me put this woman somewhere else. <laughs> I had two kids. I just needed to be in a more stable life. And I ended up going, getting a job in the prosecutor's office instead. So here I had this steady paycheck, this steady life that was more conducive to what I really needed. But in law school, I didn't know all that. So I am begging, trying to get something based on this limited little perception of my ego wanting that job because that job was the job. This is, this is what our ordinary minds, when we live in this selfing kind of way, we close in on thinking it has to be like this. And we, we need to control the outcome. We need to make a situation be like this. And we get trapped in these situations thinking that this is the way it should be. And we suffer for it. Because one, it takes a lot to hold on to it. Two, we can't control it. So for me, it was so embarrassing having to lose that job because everybody knew I lost it because I failed it. The bar, because I spent a, a whole three or four months bragging about having this job. I was so arrogant that I bragged to everybody. And then, of course, I had to tell everybody, no, I'm not working there anymore. And so this, un- what, I realize now in my life versus then is that I still would want something like I still would want to teach at a certain retreat or I'd still want to have something happen, but I've let go of this need to make it happen. I'm really okay with what happens in my life. Sometimes things go in the way that I would hope they would go, and sometimes they don't. But either way, I feel more attached to experience like right now. I'm more attached to this right now than I am what's going to happen next week or what's going to happen two weeks from now or next month. It doesn't mean that I don't have disappointment, but I don't carry the weightedness of disappointment I used to carry simply because I have learned to be with 
disappointment. I've learned to be with it in its present moment and not dwell on trying to control things the way I want them to be so I won't be disappointed. This this anatta that we're going to explore, and I'm just giving you kind of like an open understanding of it, but this anatta that we're going to explore over the course of the month is really the beginning to see that the less you need to control your life, And the more you just live it, be in it, be a part of it, whatever's happening, be in it. As it is, good days, bad days, things working out, things not working out, the more you just begin to get interested in what does it feel like when you get angry? What is that really? What does that feel like? What does it feel like when you get angry with your partner and when you're not angry with your partner? What is that? The more we get interested in all of it, the less kind of control we have to have to prevent certain things from happening. Because as venerable Kandana realized, everything that arises passes away. You can see for yourself that good days, bad days, things working out, things not working out, it all kinds of comes around. It just comes and goes. Life comes and goes. So yeah, something crazy might happen today and I go out to start my car and it doesn't work. Uh, I don't have enough money to fix it. That might be your reality here. Um, and it may be that you're going to be without a car for a while. But chances are you're going to eventually figure out a way to get a car. If I could get a car and I was on welfare, anybody can eventually get a car. We just got to work it out. But there's this way in which we, um, we, we come to learn that in the moment that you're living, whatever comes, that is to be known. In that moment. There is something quite beautiful, something quite precious about the experience you're having. Because what you're having is a human experience right here, right now. And if we don't begin to learn that all of these experiences are all worthy of discernment, then we so limit ourselves. We so limit um, what what we can be what can be known. I think I want to uh, uh, leave you with Pima's one last thing that Pima shared. She said meditation. This is the practice we're doing, meditation and this exploration of the Eightfold Path or Dhamma itself. It is a process of lightening up, of trusting the basic goodness of what we already have and who we already are and realizing that any wisdom that exists, exists 
and what we already have. We can lead our lives so as to become more awake to who we are and what we're doing rather than trying to improve or change or get rid of who we are or what we're doing. The key is to wake up, to become more alert, more inquisitive, and more curious about ourselves in this moment. So let's sit a moment here. Okay, well, let's see if anybody has any questions here, any comments. You don't actually have to have a question. You could just have a comment. Let's see when I come back. Come on up. To come up here and have our little makeshift two mics. Yeah, once we're in the room and once we're on the. Right, yeah, thank you for yeah. your uh, Dharma talk. Uh, yeah. The question I have is I guess you did mention what arises will secede. Uh, is there anything that doesn't follow that pattern that is timeless, perhaps truth? Uh, and the, the reason I'm asking is, I mean, in the march towards uh, experiencing life or becoming a better version of who you are, we do want to anchor towards something that uh, that is timeless. Yeah. I think that's uh, righteous. That's that's it. I think the time, there is something that's timeless that's that does not follow that rising and passing. But what he said, he said, uh, um, I'll paraphrase a little bit. That he asked, is there there's this understanding of everything that arises passes away, and is there something that doesn't follow that pattern? of what arises, passes away. And um, that in, in, in thinking of the path, you would want to anchor yourself to something that is not arising and passing away, which is so true because if you anchor yourself to something that's arising and passing away, then um, uh, you're always going to be losing and getting and losing. And that's what we, that's what we do in ordinary mind. We try to anchor to something that is inherently impermanent. So the thing that is, that is not part of that is awareness. This capacity to know is not tied to the arising and passing. And so what 
I think the Buddha anchored himself to was this steady knowing of what is happening and that he could see the arising and passing away. Um, it is where, it is how concentration arises. It is how wisdom arises. It's in the, the awareness itself, the knowing that you know what's happening. And that's what he, he anchored to. So even the felt sense of breathing, it's the knowing that the body is breathing, that breathing is happening. The knowing of the felt sense of this breathing that we anchor to in meditation and gradually we can begin to see all kinds of um, uh, understandings. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, someone online. Okay, so while you're coming up, go ahead online. Let me mute myself. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, and please stop me if it's out of scope. I'm still new. Um, in the world of those of us who have had past trauma, the concept of self is also really important, but it's used very differently. And it's used, it's considered a good thing. They try to teach you to recover who you really are and how to set boundaries, and uh, how to be respectful of, of yourself, which also is the same thing as being, you know, kind to yourself and to others. Um, so, uh, but the boundary thing, it's a really big part of it. And I think after today, I have a good idea of how this concept of self differs from what you were describing. But if you, if you could comment further on... Um, kind of how to reconcile or juxtapose the two, that'd be great. So if you will mute yourself, I'll explain. And then, uh, okay, so um, uh, that's actually very good because what I'm pointing to is exactly what you're pointing to. The thing with trauma, I came from so much trauma is we have this label of who we think we are. And that label is we are stuck to it and we can't be anything other than that. So if you're, if you're uh, traumatized as a child and you think that brings you into this place of unworthiness, you stay with this idea that I'm unworthy. And it doesn't matter what anyone says. You stay with this idea. What the Buddha was pointing to is that in this present moment, you are as worthy as anything else in the present moment because you're not separate from the present moment. You are here, and that being here makes the moment worthy, makes you worthy, makes the moment worthy, makes the whole thing. So what he's pointing to is that you are not You are not who you were. So whatever happened in the past, I'm not the trauma of my past. I am not some projection of who I think I should be in the future or some person I think I should be. I am 
the living, breathing being that happens to be right here with all of my uh, capacities and limitations, whatever they are in the moment. But I also have the potential of becoming anything else in the next moment because of my capacities and my limitations. So uh, uh, if I had it, if I could say it um, fully, there's a Zen uh, teacher that says, basically, in order to understand non-self, you have to first love the self. You first have to have a self and love the self to understand that's what I was pointing to as a black woman. That's who I am. And I have to love that. But it also gives me the capacity to realize I am not just that. There's way more to me than just that. And that ability to both know I was traumatized, but I'm not just a traumatized kid. I'm also uh, a lawyer, but I'm also as someone who's very free in the mind, very wise in the mind. So I'm all of it. But I'm not so naive to believe I won't be that traumatized kid if I get triggered. In a moment, I can be that person too. But if I get triggered and I'm back in this traumatized kid and I'm acting all crazy and yelling and screaming at somebody and they'll be like, oh, my bad. I don't hate myself because now I'm back in this wisdom mind and I don't hate myself because I was in this traumatized mind. I understand what that was. Be like, oh, apologize, vow. I'm going to try not to get caught in that trauma again. It's like that. So you're not trapped in any one being and that's who you are, some label. And that's the only thing you can do. That's what non-self is. I think it's the same thing you're being taught. It's in that same vein of being free. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll let you be the last one. Um, I, oh, is both of them on? Uh, it must be the mic. Is it on in here? Let's see. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, so something you, when you brought up the aspect of being a black woman, it really, uh, flipped on a light bulb in my head. And, um, one of the things I've been thinking about just in my personal life is like, how do I notice my whiteness or how do I notice my straightness or how do I like experience myself as a white person? And, what you said made me think, oh, wow, Anata is like really great cover for white, whiteness sort of being like, no, it's all the same. Um, And I was just curious, I guess this is sort of a broader question, but um, Buddhism, as I've seen it, at least in my limited scope so far in the U.S., does seem really dominated by white folks. And I'm just curious if that, that aspect of like, anatta and whiteness and and how anatta could be like mistaken for oh no 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 you're not a straight person or a gay person or whatever 
is that being talked about? Like, oh, yes. Okay. 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 I think more now than it used to be. But uh, I think uh, the practice, Buddhism, the practice itself, it increased by word of mouth. So whenever anything increases by word of mouth, you're going to tell the people you know. And the people you know are all white, and they're going to tell all their friends and all their friends and all their friends. But after a while, it became much more uh, known by like people from the queer community or people from BIPOC communities, or Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And so you have all these different people that begin to come in, but when they came in, they were met with this attitude of, no, you can't bring that separate energy in here because uh, that that's like separation. That's what the issue became, that if I came and said, oh, I need a, I need to have, a, I need to get a group of BIPOC people together and let's have our own little sit. There became this pushback as if, if I do that, um, I'm creating a self and, 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 it, and there's no self. If you want to know whether or not there's a self, just go to the hood. Walk around a whole a place where there's a whole bunch of black people. I think you would feel very white. You would notice it automatically. Even if nobody's paying attention to you, you would notice it. And I think BIPOC people notice our race because we're primarily around so many white people here. And so many white people in this practice. But if I went to a black church, I never think I'm black. I just go to church. I never had that sense. So it makes sense that white people wouldn't think, oh, um, they wouldn't necessarily know that there is this distinction that's being made. So I think in the beginning, there was a lot of pushback. And uh, if you just said you wanted an affinity, affinity sit, it would be so difficult to get one. But now that uh, I think a lot of cultural competency. I think there's been a lot of uh, practicing together and there's been a lot of um, people who have, it, it, you know, like if I am the only black person in a room as a practitioner and there's like when I used to come to Sims, it was me and there would be 200 white people in the room. I'm less likely to do the champion for the black people. But if you got about 10 of us in the room, then I think you'll probably be a little bit more bolder in our conversations. And so gradually, more BIPOC people stayed in the room. More people from the queer community stayed in the room. And so there was this voice that was given words to. And then it became this understanding. Because what ended up happening I think everyone, I think the white people that were in the practice thought it would be, you, you are separating if you have an affinity sit over here. But what they begin to realize is, is that if there was this affinity sit and 
people went to the sit and they relaxed their energy down and settled a little bit more. You know, it's hard to come into a room and close your eyes and, and just sit quietly. But if you were sitting in a room with all black people, I'd be all chilled out, relaxed, <laughs> feeling good. You'd be a little tense, like a, a little eye opening. What's going on? You know, because there'd be this uneasiness and that's what BIPOC people go through. And so when they would go into these affinity sits, they would settle down and then they could sit in the room in a more settled space. And once I think the larger white community begin to realize that, then the idea of having a affinity sit, you can't pretty much go to a retreat in the inside tradition and not have an affinity sit. So it's like pretty, yeah, pretty uh, common in the big center. Some of the smaller ones may not, but like Cloud Mountain doesn't, but in the bigger centers, yeah, there, there's an affinity set every time. One for the, the BIPOC group or one for a fin, uh, queer community. And, and it allows for this settling to happen over the course of the retreat. And there's still, we all sit together and then there's this affinity sit where you can settle and then you can sit together. And there was this realization that it actually made people more connected and less uh, on edge and less kind of panicky and somebody steps on someone's toes and it's less of that. Um, but we have the capacity not to be so reactive. So that's really what happens. But if you want to see where your biases are, you have to go into the spaces where you are in the minority. And then it's very easy. Just go into areas where there's Spanish-speaking people, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm feeling very comfortable when it's around the English. Because all of a sudden, I don't know what anybody's saying unless you speak English in China because they all know what English. I was on the bus and everybody's speaking in Chinese. So me and my friends start speaking in English. Luckily, we weren't talking about nobody because we would have been in trouble. And then all of a sudden, I noticed that no one's really talking. So I said, job. I think these people know what we're saying. And the whole back of the bus just busted out and started laughing. I thought, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) Americans are the worst, man. We don't know no other language except for English. Everybody else in the rest of the world, they're all like bilingual, triple lingual. They know like four or five languages. So, but if you go to a area where English is not the language that everyone speaks, then you're going to begin to see what it's like going to a store where English is not the language that's common. You'll see what it's like to be in a world where you don't know what people are saying and they are talking freely around you, but you don't know. And you can begin to see what it's like, um, begin to understand what it's like. That's really all it is. It's just learning to get comfortable around places we're not usually comfortable being. 